Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, folks. It is episode 173. It is the 23rd of June and big show coming up. This is someone that a lot of people have been getting in touch with us saying they want to hear from on the show. Someone who's uh, developed a bit of a cult social media following, especially since coronavirus came about. Tim Smith, MP. He's a Victorian liberal MP here like at the state level. So if you don't know him interstate, he's very... Uh, I would say he's one of the guys most at Daniel Andrews' throat over coronavirus lockdown restrictions, and we thought after Sunday, who else better to talk to about what's been going on? That's exactly right. We've been trying to get a hold of him for a couple of weeks. He's sort of like following the Trump playbook on Twitter and just making himself really prominent, and it's a great chat. Yeah, so uh, looking forward to that, and I think that's probably where we should start the show, because it's certainly the only topic of conversation here in Victoria, and now that all the other premiers are getting stuck in, it's starting to, or premiers are starting to (laughs) get stuck in interstate, it's the number one thing in the state, so... Pete, cool. there was advice. Oh, Pete's uh, Peter switched to paper notes this week, and yeah. he's just dropped them in the first minute of the show. So interesting well. start. Pete, there was advice from Scott Morrison a few weeks ago that we were going to see more cases come out of coronavirus in Australia, and hmm. he implored state premiers. I said it right that time. State premiers to hold their nerve. Don't blink as cases rise. Yeah. Don't stop opening up. Don't stop making sure that Australians can have the quality of life. And I wouldn't say the Victorian government blinked over the weekend so much as slipped into a deep coma. Yeah, well, no, that's exactly right. The, 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 the language around like second wave, we've had a first wave yet, so it can't be the second wave, and spike and surge when we've had, what is it? Uh, we've had what? We've got 127 cases in Victoria at the moment. New South Wales has 332. Mm. And, and it was like five straight days of double digits. Yeah, yeah, double yeah. digits. We've got like 19 today, oh, 16 today, 19 on Sunday, 25 or something like that on Saturday. Uh, so the idea that we're in the middle of some surge pandemic is uh, fake. And I know the situation can change quickly. Um, but yeah, so just a few other things that have been changed. Public gatherings will be limited to 10 people. The number of visitors to a home will reduce to five visitors, which I know you'll be flooded about. You had a big weekend last weekend uh, at a house party. Uh, patron Never tell Pete anything immediately before <laughs> doing a podcast with him because he will use it against you. Very flat, people. Uh, patron limits in restaurants, cafes and pubs will remain up to 20 seated patrons. Yeah, so there you go. And I think the thing that just annoys most people, apart from the restrictions themselves, is the hypocrisy that we saw in dealing with even the language around the protests versus this. He said, or they said during the press conference, we will go door to door if we have to, mm. you know, when they're pushing around small businesses and families. But when it's a protest, it's like... Please don't go. We won't find you, but please don't go. Yeah. Uh, you kind of yada yada one thing I really want to talk about, which is that cafes and pubs are set to, uh, they were set to be allowed 50 patrons as of Monday. Yeah, yeah. And then the day before, mm. like after they've set their rosters, after they've told the staff we're back on, after they've, you know, probably moved furniture around trying to make sure that they can get the 50 that they were expecting back in, mm. the day before they're told, nah. Yeah. July 12. Well, exactly right. And a lot of it was, um, gee, I do say exactly right a lot, didn't I? These guys were giving me a bit of, I can't say the word, but they were giving me stick about saying yeah. exactly right all the time and I've said it 58 times already. So they were right. Anyway, no, yeah, I don't know if it was, I think that the announcement was on the Saturday, but yeah, I mean, like a lot of food would have been ordered, you know, things like that. And that's really throwing the cat amongst the pigeons. And also like, how is anyone supposed to keep track of this? Because there's not a blanket. If I can have five people to my house, why can 20 people go to a cafe? So I think Mm. what's going to happen is that you are like a lot of people out there are just not going to be able to follow these rules and they're going to go, okay, cafes must be down to five. Therefore I'm not going to go to a cafe and therefore the cafes don't get business Mm. or, Oh, there were 20 people at a cafe I went to this morning. Why can't I not have these people over tonight? Because one of the things they're saying about the reason they need to lock down further is because families are infecting each other in some of uh, Melbourne's more, well, not even Melbourne. It's more like Victoria's more disadvantaged areas. Mm. And the report in the Australian was that these are, tend to be communities with a high level of recent immigrants or first-generation immigrants. And just wonder, for these people, it is hard to track what is and what is not allowed. Mm. And this makes it so much harder. It makes it so much harder. I reckon that's – I'm not so sure about that. Like That's a bit of a talking point that people are sort of saying, oh, you know, it's immigrant communities, but they're struggling to, to follow the directions. It's like it's such a small number that how can you cast dispersions over – you know, we're talking about like, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 cases. Like that's, you know, how many families could that possibly be? I don't know if it's it's really that. But yeah, um, you know, it is difficult for people to 
follow one of the things that annoyed me actually uh, was the regional aspect of this. There's some regions of Victoria that have no cases at all. Yeah, I would say Why? the vast majority. Uh, I don't know if it's the vast majority. There's a lot of regions that have like one or two, but 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 I mean, the vast majority have barely any. Yeah, like the 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 like spike uh, or the outbreaks are basically six regions in Victoria in our outer suburbs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So so out in the country, you know, there's places that have not none at all. They're all stuck at home, and it's, mm. and they've had ages to plan for if a so-called second wave was going to come. There's no reason for them to not be able to deliver something a little bit more nuanced that we're going to look then we're going to lock everyone down. Well, this comes into how premiers around Australia are talking about this because other premiers are saying don't go to Victoria. Other premiers are saying like our state border openings are delayed as a result of this. Yeah. I know Mark McGowan, who uh, we said on the last week, if both Western Australian footy teams got absolutely smacked on the mm. weekend, that the pressure to increase, open the borders would increase. They were. And then Victoria hands in this get out of jail free card of like, well, this is why we can't do it. I don't yeah. care how many losses West Coast and Frio get. But anyway, the point is a lot of premiers out there are hoping for eradication of the virus, which is a noble goal. No one wants anyone to get coronavirus. But the idea that you're going to lock down everything until we have a virus cure might be years. And mm. if that's the goal, we're going to live like this for years. Mm. And we can't live like this for years. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And it should be, it should be targeted at different uh, regions that uh, may not have it at all. And it should be targeted at different groups. We mentioned that story in the Wall Street Journal last week. It had a study in it from MIT, which it's not just which evaluated the, the lockdowns. And it wasn't just that the cost of the lockdowns outweigh the benefits. It's that the lockdown is not the best way of fighting this. This was one study, but it was that if you direct scarce resources at the whole population, you will save half as many lives as if you direct resources at the vulnerable groups in society. So a broad approach like a lockdown, which helps people that don't need it at all, like healthy young people, is actually not even the most effective way of it tackling this according to this one study from MIT. And I think that kind of bleeds into what we're seeing and that Victoria had some of the most restrictive measures in Australia. And mm. especially like as restrictions started to ease, Victoria dragged behind the rest of the country, but Victoria has the worst outbreaks. Mm. So to me, like, oh, lockdown does not necessarily mean that cases go away. Yeah. But, and it just, it, what it does mean is that for an even longer period of time, more than half of Australia are reliant on the government for income and the government can only raise income off a minor, what is now a minority of Australians, which yeah. is unsustainable. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's true. And, and yeah, I mean, just the, the, the whole thing about a spike is just yeah. rubbish at this stage. And, and there's like a whole lot of stuff we're not saying about the uh, inconsistencies and... Um, I, I am blanking on the word, but the hypocrisy, that's the word. Sorry, it's just such a foreign concept to me. I yeah, can't, well, sometimes forget it. Thing, but yeah. we are going to be talking about that with Tim Smith later in the show and we don't really want to go over yeah. the same thing twice. Sorry, I'd like to move on, if I could, Pete, unless yeah. you've got any more takes, no, no. which is Donald Trump over the weekend had his first campaign rally of the 2020 season, uh, the first one that was going to be in person. He did it in Oklahoma. Lot of lot of talk coming into it. A million tickets had been registered. There was the idea that not only were they going to sell out that stadium, but they needed a second stadium. And Donald Trump, like, sorry, Donald Trump is going to speak to the overflow. None of that eventuated. We have basically, I mean, one of the signs that the world is returning to normal is we're back arguing over how many people actually turn up to Trump rallies, hmm. which is a good sign. But it does seem that just over 6,000 people, according to the Tulsa Fire Department, just over 6,000 people were at the rally, which is not the overflow they were expecting. Exactly right. They they said the stadium fits 19,000 people and there's all these embarrassing photos of, you know, it was like a Melbourne game, all these blank uh, seats. And and as you said, the overflow thing was meant to have heaps of people. They said they had a million, I think. Uh, yeah, a million registered tickets. And there's accusations that from uh, AOC, she said that they were fake uh, ticket reservations from teens off Tic Tac. If the, uh, TikTok. TikTok. Oh, that's that's the oldest moment you've ever had. TikTok. Well, at least uh, you know I understand TikTok, James. I'm like yourself. Uh, and but if that's true, it's staggering that the government didn't pick it up. Mm. I mean, not the government. The campaign didn't pick it up. Like that's that's an example of it being really bad. And just the way he came out and blamed protesters and he blamed the media, it was pathetic to me. Like the the, the thing absolutely failed, and he came out and said, "Oh, you know, this is the media's fault." The thing was a was a really bad look for him, and it led us to ask the question: Is Trump cooked? Tough to, well, I mean, it is, what, June and mm. the election's in November and, mm. I mean, we've all 
saying that the man can come from way back and still mm. win it, but it does look pretty grim. And uh, yeah, this is a point that Raheem Kassan made on Twitter, which is if Trump genuinely, if the Trump campaign genuinely thought that many people were coming, and I don't know if it was like this TikTok or K-pop. I think it's TikTok, isn't it? Uh, I think TikTok. Yeah. So TikTok or K-pop. Uh, trolls that registered fake tickets and then didn't show up. Yeah. Who knows like where this came from? But genuinely, if the, if they're that off on where, what their own base feels about uh, the Trump campaign, or maybe even just like going outside in the middle of a virus, doesn't really bode well for where they're sitting overall. Mm. I would say, and I I don't know. Like my gut feel is still there is going to be a moment in a debate where Joe Biden's brain melts and it is so embarrassing that it could kill the entire campaign. Like, you know, the analogy I've been making is Nixon flops wet times a million, yeah. which if I'm, I'm, I don't know if everyone knows what I'm oh, talking about there, but uh, when the first presidential debate was televised between Nixon and Kennedy, Kennedy was young and he's handsome and he's charismatic. Dreamy. And, yeah. Dreamy captain of the dream boat. And cut to Nixon and he's got like flop sweat all over his forehead Obviously. and he just oh. looks a bit out of it. And one looked presidential, one didn't. And I can see something in the debate stage happening a bit like that. They've asked for... The- if, if Biden like does one of his, you know, sentence goes awry moments and ends up talking about corn pop or uh, what oh, is it? Uh, that would be a winner though. The virus problem has to... We have to take care of the cure instead yeah. of the virus. Yeah, Trump's going to destroy him. Yeah, well they've asked. Badly. Yeah, they've asked for a, 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 a de- one more debate than they than they normally have. Like they normally have three or something. They've asked for four because mm. they know that's going to happen. I reckon they'd several. be asking for it daily. It's yeah, like, let, let's get on the stage for an hour right now. Yeah, no, they, I mean they should. They would be asking for several. Well, he will have several moments like that. Yeah, but so he's so just to get to the polls. And we know that the polls were incorrect last time. The polls are massively. Every poll is massively ahead for Biden and some of them are in double digits uh, ahead for Biden. Uh, and I just want to play you. And, and so, and there was this figure, there was this, you know, image of uh, Trump getting off the helicopter after the rally and he looked knackered and it was yeah. just like that car. Oh, like the tie around the neck. Yeah. Was, which is yeah. weird that they let him get it, walk out there like that. And he had the hat in his hand mm. and he looked knackered and it was like, Oh my God, I can't believe your people let you do that. But it was, or they tried to stop him and he's like, yeah, don't yeah, talk to me yeah. right now. Uh, but all the guys that told me how many people were coming, I'm stuffed listening to. Oh, yeah. I mean, there could have been some pretty stern words around the Trump mm. could have cracked it. But um, the reason why I'm saying this, because, you know, this guy's had the uh, opposition on the run for three years. Like, he's run rings around them for three years. It's only recently that this has changed. I want to play something from Tucker Carlson. If you missed it, Tucker Carlson basically jumped off the Trump train uh, during the week and he said this. Republican leaders don't believe they have the authority. They don't believe they're legitimate. They don't see the threat. They don't want to see the threat because they know they can't face the mob. They know they're too weak. And so they offer trinkets and hope the mob will go away, but it won't. Mobs can't be sated. We thought Republicans understood that. That's why we supported them. But crisis has revealed the truth. Now we know who they are. It could not be clearer. And now it's time to find new leaders. That's the essence of it, right? Like, this is Mr. I'm going to make America great again. But over the last few weeks, the people who voted for him are like, what are you doing? Like, my country's being destroyed. You said you were going to, that the one thing you were going to do was protect us, protect this country. Uh, we're seeing people, you know, bashed in there trying to protect their business. Well, we're seeing people murdered trying to protect their businesses. We've seen, you know, the history of the country attempted to be erased. Uh, and this is what he was brought in to prevent from happening. And he's been pretty... And I know the federal system's hard for the president to have impact in individual states, but for what, whether rightly or wrongly, he's the one who's meant to protect people and they haven't hasn't been able to do it. Well, and then you could sort of say that the riots died down after Trump said, I will send the National Guard. And so mm. you've got to go like, well, what, where was that a week ago mm. when it was really bad? I mean, yeah, again, it's June, election's not till November, million things could happen. And if I could have one piece of advice for Trump, it would be take a leaf out of the Daniel Andrews playbook and just make fun of South Australia. Yeah. If, you, if you've got too much going on right now, just say, why would you go to South Australia? And then everyone will take that bait. Andrews is probably taking it out of the Trump book. Trump, is, doesn't Trump makes fun of South Australia. But yeah, no, so Tucker represents a fair bit of Republican opinion. And that's yes, why I, think. I would but say so. You're exactly right that there's a long way to go. But also that point you wanted to raise, not wanted to raise, but you sent to me earlier about Actually, a lot of people tuned in on Fox. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I saw one tweet and didn't check uh, the whole thing, but it <laughs> is right. interesting that um, the television ratings were out of control. So maybe people are 
on the Trump bandwagon, but they just don't want to go to a crowded stadium in the middle of coronavirus, which is, you know, understandable. But uh, we'll move on to heroes and villains. So this is oh. a grunt the pig. Cyber attack? Cyber attack. Let's do that. No worries. The printed sheet has come through. So the cyber attack, was it a cyber attack or wasn't it a cyber attack, James? That's the question. So is that Shakespeare? Uh, there was a, so it was announced that there was a sophisticated state-based cyber actor was currently attacking Australian organisations on Friday. That was Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of this country, James. Uh, it went on to say the activity is targeting Australian organisations across a range of sectors. Um, however, so everyone thought, oh, we're being attacked right now because mm. that's what he sort of said. But uh, actually, it emerged that no single breach prompted the Morrison press conference. Actually, there was a number of breaches increasing over a number of weeks, and he was just trying to make the point that this is a growing threat, which was obviously a weird way to do it. David Spears tweeted out, just to clear this up, so doing the job for the government, this is not a major cyber attack underway right now. There's been an increase in frequency attacks over recent months. So uh, there wasn't actually a massive cyber attack on Friday, but mm. there has been increasing numbers. So we talk about this stuff all the time, James, and one of the reasons why we talk about the, th the government should be collecting data is because they create these massive silos of data that create the security threat in the first place. Yeah, um, I'm kind of just repeating your points, but... Mm. That's all right, they were good. Yeah, they were good points, sorry. A failure for clear messaging on something as important as cybersecurity. Yeah. Clearly, the government doesn't exactly know what's going on. If they're doing a press conference saying there is an attack, there isn't an attack. So, lack of clear messaging, not a whole lot of clear data, not a whole lot of clear heads in the room, but download COVID safe. Exactly right. And, they, and so, if there's attacks increasing that is all the more reason to not create these massive silos of things that people can access. You know, mm. If you don't create them in the first place, they can't access them, no matter how sophisticated your defences are. Fantastic. All right, Heroes and Villains, this is a Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort for the hero of the week, people that have stood up for good things around the world. Peter Gregory, start us off. Well, I just realised I'm not 100% how to sh uh, sure how to pronounce this, so that's good, I'm real professional. But there is a pub – J.K. Rowling's publisher, is it Hachette? Hatchette? I reckon Hatchette. I think H it's Hatchet. Oh, is it? Is in like, you know, a small axe. Well, H-A-C-H-E-T-T-E -E is the name of the publisher who is publishing a book by J.K. Rowling's, J.K. Rowling called uh, The Ichabog, which sounds like a really good read. Uh, now, J.K. Rowling's publisher, Hatchet, said that, uh, has told staff they're not allowed to refuse work on her novels because they disagree with her views on transgender issues. So a number of employees there have said that they are objected to being, to work on her children's news new children's story, The Ichabog, which is obviously not about transgender issues. It's just a children's book. Um, they said... Well, who knows these days? Whom's to say, James? The freedom of speech, this is what Hatchett said, is freedom of speech is the cornerstone of publishing. We fundamentally, fundamentally believe that everyone has the right to express their own thoughts and beliefs. That's why we never comment on our author's personal views and we respect our employees' roles. Employees' right to hold a different view. We will never make our employees work on a book whose content they find upsetting for personal reasons, but we draw a distinction between that and refusing to work on a book because they disagree with the author's views outside of their writing. So it's just good to see one media organisation not be a coward. Yeah, I jump in, but it, this bleeds so well into My Hero of the Week, so I'm just going to save our points for the both uh, okay. until the end of this. So My Hero this week, Peter Hitchens. I mean, this is a guy getting a lot of uh, good play on this podcast and, again, rapidly rising up my rankings of Hitchens. It's one and two right now, and I don't know who's number one anymore. But Peter Hitchens, I mean, we played uh, – it was a question in the quiz last week that uh, who was the guy walking away, hands in pockets, backpack on from a protest about himself, Peter Hitchens. Yeah. This is all as a result of him refusing to take the knee at the or take the buttock, as he says, at the Rhodes protest. And he wrote an op-ed just basically talking about experience. And here's the title. I've seen hamsters more intimidating than the mob who shouted at me, but Whack. what is threatening is the intolerance of all other opinions. A brief snippet. Go read the article. Brief snippet. I cannot tell you how unworried I was. I've been on and witnessed demonstrations infinitely more volatile than this one. As a left-wing teenager, I was in the midst of the Battle of Grosvenor Square in March of 1968, in which a protest against the Vietnam War ended in severe violence and many arrests. I was in East Berlin in 1989 when the People's Police changed uh, charged freedom campaigners on the... Uh, Schoenhauser Ali. I had no idea that I could still run so fast. Goes on to say, here's the point. As J.K. Rowling's publishers have said, as Peter Hitchens is now saying, you can stand up to these mobs, mm. and once you stand up to them, there is not actually that much that they can do. Yeah. They, 
if you don't fire the author and if you don't apologize in a public sphere and if you just stand up and say, look, these are my opinions and if you do not like them, sorry. Mm. And if you're a big publisher and you say these are the opinions of our authors, they might not necessarily agree with the editorial, but these things need to be said. There's not much they can do because mm. then apart from writers and the writers weren't exactly, you know, the most uh, here's my uh, Twitter feed kind of protesters in the world – it's not they're not violent they're not intimidating all they can do is just get angry with you online and you can withstand people getting angry with you online yeah exactly right i just don't surrender once and see mm. what happens i think i certainly pass out the difference between that and the rioters the rioters seem to me it's more garden variety criminality really. yes uh moving on to villains shall we okay so the extinction rebellion fake nudie run villain of the week here is the footage more than 300 arrests have been made across australia as extinction rebellion protests enter their sixth day that was the fake nudie run that extinction rebellion claimed was a protest against destroying the earth but they couldn't even bother doing a proper nudie run james who's your villain uh the american museum of natural history is my villain and also Bill de Blasio because they are removing a prominent statue of Theodore Roosevelt from its entrance after years of objections that it symbolizes colonial expansion. Now, years could mean like three tweets, as I discussed last week over Colonial Brewing Co. Years of objections could mean two Mm. tweets over the space of five years. But certainly in this age of cancer culture, the statue of Theodore Roosevelt from the entrance is gone and they've moved it. And this is getting a bit sad. First off, Night at the Museum, the movie, won't be the same without yeah. Robin Williams as Theodore Roosevelt. So you can't watch that movie anymore. And I'd also say Roosevelt is one of the presidents on Mount Rushmore. So that's that, that entire mountain now has to go. We cancel need to the mountain. Cancel the mountain, disband the mountain. Turn it into a coal mine. Uh, mountain must fall. Now, if your own presidents are too problematic for you, and there's now, you know, George, like all these presidents before 1861, like we can't... Uh, talk about anything that they did like Jefferson because they were slave owners and I think you're going to talk about the statue of Ulysses S. Grant and Lincoln that were also yep. uh, dis- dismantled. Like if your own presidents are too problematic for you that you can't even talk about them, then this is ahistorical and it's like this blank slate, Maoist, clean slate of history. And what I would say is if there is a statue like that and there are instances of, you know, there are like it is a shame, it is a terrible shame that these figures in history own slaves or weren't exactly great to other cultures but if you can't talk about that openly and talk but instead you know everyone just wants to destroy the statues if you can't talk about it openly you just say historical Mm. and then there's no history at all yeah don't like racing it's not going to change it yeah you got to you know put a shine a light on it and put a bit of context and as we always say you know put up statues of other people that aren't that are underrepresented Mm. and things like that uh, yeah, no, good one. I've got one that's very similar. A lot of statue talk, as you know, because that's a big issue at the moment. My villain, and this is stealing from Daniel Hannon. My my villain is what would I? How would I call this? People destroying statues of people who agree with them. <laughs> Let's say so. Dan Hannon had a list of people who have been vandalised. Their statues have been vandalised. Uh, so I'm copying completely from the great Dan Hannon, who was a friend of the show. Matthias Baldwin and John Greenland Whittier, abolitionist campaigners, have had their statue vandalised. The memorial, as we've talked about, to his black Civil War regiment, Ulysses Grant, who defeated the Confederacy, Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves, James, and Winston Churchill, who defeated Nazism. So if you're out there destroying statues of people that pretty much agree with you, and I would add have done so much more than you've ever done for disadvantaged minority groups, you're a villain, mate. Yes. Um, Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. Thank well you, James. All right, uh, let us go to the interview with Tim Smith. Yeah. Okay, we now welcome on to the show someone I'm very excited to talk to, Tim Smith, MP, member for Q. Tim, how are you going today? Very well, James. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm glad that when you sat down, you were like, hey, guys, we need to take this seriously. Yeah. We need the 1.5 metre social distancing, so we're now equally spread out. I think actually maybe Pete and I slightly, but we're not going to get into that. But Tim... Uh, Victorian government have once again brought uh, restrictions into, like they've gone back, they're now making us more restricted and we've got 130 odd cases despite a state of over 6 million people. So in your mind, are these new restrictions justified? No, they're not. But at the same time, something's going wrong in Victoria because the entire country is virtually, well, over the weekend there were 26 cases, I think it was on Saturday and 25 of them were in Victoria. So you've got to say to yourself, well, something's going wrong in Victoria with the way that we're managing this situation. 
something's going very well in places like South Australia, for example, that have, have had zero cases of coronavirus for literally weeks. So what, what's going on, Victoria? Why, why are we seeing such a rise in coronavirus cases? And uh, the honest answer is because it hasn't been managed properly. And one of the key aspects of that poor management was the protest two weekends ago. Now, there is no surprise to me that we've seen a significant spike in coronavirus cases two weeks after a protest where 10,000 people marched through the centre of Melbourne illegally, where only three of them were fined. And I just think that's completely outrageous from a moral perspective that you have businesses that are being threatened with fines. If you have 21 people in a coffee shop, uh, the pizza shop owner or the coffee shop owner is threatened with a fine, yet 9,997 protesters, however reasonable the cause was and remains, weren't fined. That's not fair. That's not a democracy. In a democracy, the, the law is applied equally to everyone. It's called the rule of law. Well, we don't have that in Victoria at the moment. Now, that protest has done one of two things. It's either spread the virus. Um, now, the government's saying that that's not the case. Uh, I'm sceptical. I'm yeah, very, if I'm I could jump I'm in, this idea that there's like this H&M cluster, but two of the employees were at the protest, Correct. but it's like completely linked to the H&M. I, I, I'm sceptical. I, I think that... Um, as you say, there's, there's two employees of H&M at Northland that attended this protest. Uh, I think that there has to be some connection with that cluster and the protest. But let's put that to one side. I think what it showed the community was that clearly if Daniel Andrews isn't going to fine anyone for 10,000 people gathering and protesting, contrary to all the rules around social distancing, gatherings outside and the like, then I think it's fair to say that most people in the, in the community thought that the worst of the coronavirus was behind us and essentially we could forget about all the restrictions and indeed the sacrifices we'd all made for months to keep this thing at bay. So two weeks ago, essentially the shackles came off, everyone did whatever the hell they liked. Funnily enough, two weeks later we get a spike in coronavirus cases. Why? Because the message that was sent from Daniel Andrews was that no one will be fined. Therefore, the message that went home to families across Melbourne was that, oh, the worst is behind us, we can do whatever we like. And that's the problem. When you don't apply the law equally to everyone, you can't turn around two weeks later and say, oh, well, you, you, you shouldn't have gathered and, quote, got on the beers. Well, what about the 10,000 protesters that gathered and got on the bongs? I mean, this is just, you know, it, it's, for one, it's not fair. For two, the messaging is all mixed. And for three... You can hardly blame people for going, oh, well, there's no big problem here. We can do whatever we like. And that's, that's what I think's happened. And that's why I think in Victoria you're seeing such a spike in cases that you're simply not seeing in New South Wales that you haven't seen in Western Australia or South Australia for months uh, and you're also not seeing in Queensland. But it's not really much of a spike, is it? Like it's only if we're looking at sort of 40 or 50 cases over the last few days in a state of 6 million people, we're talking about like the second wave's coming... We haven't really had the first wave yet. We're talking about these big spikes. Look, I'm I'm not as I'm not panicking, uh, I, as, as you are correct to observe that um, uh, 25 cases a day is not, um, you know, we're not seeing hundreds of new cases. Mm. So I'm not panicking in the sense that I think that um, we need to move to even stricter lockdowns. But it is concerning that in Victoria we're heading in the wrong direction. I mean, the rest of the country has virtually no new coronavirus cases every day. Yet in Victoria, we've got, you know, we've had 20-odd new cases every day for the last week. So uh, I, I'd like to sort of put, you know, see myself as sort of the middle ground, which is uh, I, I don't think that there's cause for panic yet, but at the same time, we're not heading in the right direction, are we? What I, I would kind of also go, there were Black Lives Matter protests also in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Western Australia, and we haven't seen the same outbreaks. So... To what I and then to what Pete says when we start saying that okay uh, Victoria is going in the wrong direction. There's all these new cases. That that kind of language doesn't really to me push us further towards opening up the country because I think the incentive there for Daniel Andrews is to go okay let's lock down just to get the cases under control. You're absolutely right. Now I don't think for a moment we should be locking down further. In fact, I think um, it and it it's been shown that. Um, uh, 
well, there were no new coronavirus cases, for example, in South Australia after that rally, and that rally in South Australia was lawful. It was permitted. Why? Because it had been literally a month without any coronavirus in South Australia. Um, if you look at New South Wales, well, every single case is different. I mean, you know, the, the, the way that this virus spreads, particularly outdoors, is still um, debatable in terms of the science. People still have a number of different views about the, uh, this contagion, um, particularly in an outdoor environment, uh, particularly with different te- outdoor temperatures and the like. Yeah, and then the World Health Organization saying asymptomatic spreading might not be as uh, widespread. What, as we, what we know is that people shouldn't. I mean, and, and every chief medical officer and chief health officer in the country has talked about don't gather in large numbers, don't do it. Okay. Now, as the um, as we, we get on top of this virus, particularly in places like Adelaide where there has been no coronavirus for literally over a month, it was deemed a risk worth taking in terms of allowing people's uh, freedom of association and speech to gather and to protest. Now, fair enough. They made, Stephen Marshall made that call that there, there hasn't been any coronavirus in Adelaide, therefore it's safe to, to protest. Well, that was never the case in Victoria. There was always cases of coronavirus. We had very strict instructions not to gather. In fact, the law of the land was that no more than 20 people can gather outside at any one time. Therefore, the law should have been applied like it has been for anyone going to a coffee shop or a pizza shop or whatnot, that if there were 21 people there, um, they would be threatened with a fine by Victoria Police. That's called the rule of law. And that's something that I, as a liberal and as someone who genuinely believes that the law ought to be applied equally to everyone, I'm simply appalled and I know many quiet Australians living in the suburbs are simply appalled that all the sacrifices they have made whether it's closing down their business or not being able to attend various social and family gatherings, whether it's Mother's Day. I mean, heavens above, they banned Anzac Day. The only way we could recognise the 100,000 Australians who died in all wars was to light a candle at the end of our driveway and yet 10,000 hooligans could walk through the centre of Melbourne and do whatever the hell they liked. And I just think that's completely wrong and unfair. What do you, where do you think that... So there's obviously hypocrisy there from the Andrews government. Where do you think that comes from? Is it just easier to push families and small business around than political allies? You know, why do you think he's made that decision? To well, I think there was a simple reticence to enforce the law. Uh, and I think that the messaging that was sent from the outset was wrong, which was you won't be fine. And that showed itself to be almost an encouragement for people to turn up. And I think if the messaging from the outset of that week was that you, if you turn up, you'll be fined... Um, equally, um, the government made no effort to stop the pro- protest. They didn't go through the courts like the New South Wales government did to, to deem it an illegal gathering. Um, so there was just a lack of intent from the government uh, and these protesters, a lot of whom are genuine left-wing activists, uh, took every opportunity to make their case. They've got every right to make their case and in any normal course of events, um, in normal times, of course I support people's right to protest. Um, but now it's not the time for those sort of activities. Yeah, I just wonder like what it says, and I, I don't even imagine that there is a clear answer to this, but what it says about our society that Australians are so willing to acknowledge Anzac Day in their own homes, but the second something like Black Lives Matter comes up, like that's the thing that uh, gets people out into the streets. And I'm not saying that you know one's an issue and one isn't, but I'm saying these are two causes that a lot of people feel very strongly about, but... Anzac Day didn't have the same sort of uh, civil disobedience that Black Lives Matter did. And I don't know what that says. Well, I think the honest answer is that most Australians are law-abiding people. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Mm. I think that having, you know, having a law-abiding society actually is a free society. Um, so, I mean, I, I recognised Anzac Day by lighting a candle um, on my balcony and, and, and I, I know the neighbours did too and... Um, uh, and a lot of people, I mean, the, put it this way, many, many, many more Australians recognise Anzac Day in their own way than have attended um, a protest in the last couple of weeks. I mean, that's a fact. But it's, I suppose, and this is what gets me so annoyed, which is I'm, I'm not criticising the cause of these, the, the motivations for people wanting to protest. I think that, you know, the murder of George Floyd was a disgrace. Um and I think that, um, you know, if Australians want to protest about the way that the law is enforced in the United States, that's their business. Uh, it's a free country. If people want to protest about that, they can. 
But um, your cause, however reasonable it may be, is not more important than the law of the land. Now, we might think that the law of the land was slightly excessive, and I certainly made a number of comments about golf and fishing and the fact that uh, in Victoria alone that kids couldn't go to school and the like. And I thought some of the restrictions early on in this pandemic were over the top, counterproductive, and frankly would have no bearing on whether or not this virus spread or it didn't. I, frankly, I thought some of them were stupid. Uh, but um, equally, I abided by the law, um, as did everyone else, because the law is the law. And um, none of us um, have the right to decide which laws we'll obey and which ones we won't just because we feel like it or just because we think that the cause that we are... I mean, I happen to think that um, it would have been perfectly appropriate for there to be a small socially distanced Anzac Day ceremony in queue at our cenotaph. You know, only a half a dozen people, appropriately distanced, lay a wreath, say the ode, go home. I would have thought that was perfectly permissible. But we, there were directions from the state and the federal government that said, no, we, we don't want people doing that. It's, it's too much of a risk. Okay. Fine, we accept that. But then 10,000 other people thought their cause was more important than potentially the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. But more importantly, well, not more importantly, but more pertinently, that the law of the land said only 20 people can gather outside. Well, it's the self-indulgence and the arrogance of these people to say that their cause is more important. Their cause trumps the law. Well, it doesn't, I'm sorry. Everyone has to adhere by the law of the land. And, you know, we all think that some of these restrictions have gone completely over the top. Of course, I'd like to see the economy being opened up. And frankly, as the Prime Minister said yesterday, we're going to have to deal with outbreaks. We're going to have to continue to open up our economy. We can, of course. I mean, why, can't, why is it that in New South Wales, um, 50 people can go, have been able to go into a hotel or a restaurant for weeks? You could have a beer in New South Wales... Without food, it's a radical idea. Mm. And on the first, and of sitting down, and sitting down, <laughs> oh, standing up, and sorry. standing yeah, up. Yeah. So, yeah, and on the first of July, um, I, I think, I think they got, there's certainly more than fifty people are going to be allowed in the pub in New South Wales. Yeah, in and Victoria. getting crowds at the footy as well, as long as they're and, socially distant. So now, I, I say again, um, Victoria's had the most severe lockdown in the country. We're going to start the rebuild in terms of our economy way behind New South Wales and other states. And their coronavirus cases are less than ours. So something hasn't worked here. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, was the lockdown too stringent to begin with, which meant that people lost faith in it? So when they saw that protest, people thought, oh, well, just do whatever the hell we like, P possibly. Now, I'm not panicking. I'm just making the point that something's not working in Victoria that's working very well in the rest of the country. So speaking of sort of nuance in the reopening of the economy, um, would you have opened up some of these uh, shires in the regions of Victoria that have no cases at all or very few cases at all? Is there any reason why they're under the same um, restrictions that we have in I, Melbourne? I, I think it's got to the point where the difference between Melbourne and certain regional areas of Victoria is so stark that those country communities are being absolutely taken to the cleaners economically. It's not fair. Um, and if policed appropriately, because we don't want... We wouldn't necessarily, and, and these country communities don't want hordes of people coming from Melbourne, right? Because they'll be fearful of the virus being spread. But if it is policed appropriately with regards to locals in those country towns being able to go to the pub, work in their office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera then of course, I think that we've got to the point now where there's no, there has been no coronavirus in so many areas of country Victoria and indeed other parts of the country. Um, for so long that it's just simply not fair that these people are under the same lockdown rules as Melbourne and other cities. I want to move on to a different topic. So another thing we've seen out of the Andrews government this week is a new cabinet got announced uh, in the wake of the branch stacking scandal. It was announced with no press conference and it was basically put in a media release seven minutes before the health minister and the chief health uh, officer were addressing the media on coronavirus. So just, you know, basically did the Friday night Bury lead story, which is a new cabinet. Uh, we had your colleague uh, Richard Reardon on the show on Friday who said a lot of things about Daniel Andrews' character and I just wonder what this story to you, tells you about Daniel Andrews. Well, he's panicking. 
I mean, he's had his worst week in a very long time. And uh, to not even front the media on the day that you announce a major cabinet reshuffle, I think, is extraordinary. Uh, he he uh, essentially dumped his public transport minister. She was moved from public transport, which is a big portfolio in state government, to consumer affairs, gaming and liquor or something. I mean, that's a huge demotion. He replaced three cabinet ministers after a major corruption scandal. Um, and so, you know, IBAC and the Ombudsman are investigating quite a number of key players within the Victorian Labor Party. And the Premier sent out the Chief Health Officer, his Minister for Health, to talk about COVID. No one fronted the cameras to talk about the reshuffle. I mean, this is a government in crisis, whether it's increased COVID cases, um, Belt and Road Initiative, branch stacking and corruption allegations. Um, this is becoming quite serious for Daniel Andrews, and I think he's a Premier under siege. I think he's panicking. And, uh, you know, I think that Labor has proven they're more worried about their internal matters than they are about trying to get the Victorian economy back on its feet after this pandemic. Righty, let's uh, move on to your Twitter activity, which has drawn a lot of, uh, I guess, attention. I had my, my brother, for example, isn't very politically engaged. I wouldn't have thought. I hope he's not watching this when I said that, but uh, not that politically engaged, but he noticed your stuff. Uh, James has got friends that noted your things as well. You've been very vocal in your criticism of Daniel Andrews during the lockdown. Uh, is that something that was deliberate or did it just happen? Well, look, it's, cer it's certainly just that there were a couple of incidents that occurred where I just thought, what the government was doing was just fundamentally stupid. For example, the first contribution I made that um, created some media attention was golf. Now, I don't play golf. I, I think that Winston Churchill is right. I think golf spoils a good walk. Now, but here's the thing. Playing golf is done in a socially distant fashion at the best of times, often and can be insisted upon doing it individually. And I just thought from a health perspective, a mental health perspective, allowing people to go and hit a ball around on their own for a couple of hours was a very good idea. And I couldn't understand if in New South Wales you could play golf, in Queensland you could play golf, in every other state you could play golf, yet in Victoria you couldn't. And then the Chief Health Officer went on 3AW and said, well, actually there's no science behind this decision to quote, broadly speaking, it's the vibe of the thing. Well, I started to ask the question, well, hang on, well, who is running the response here? Is it the political side of government or the chief health officer? Is he being corralled or heavied by Daniel Andrews into providing advice that the Premier wants to hear? Now, this is very serious because under the, under the state of emergency, under these directions, the chief health officer and indeed the deputy chief health officer have powers that in any normal course of events, you would never expect or want a bureaucrat to have over our lives. So I saw it as my constitutional obligation to start asking these questions. And given that we're in a lockdown situation, um, the best way to do that was through social media. And I used Twitter to ask the question. Now, there were some choice words that were used to um, give effect to my concern and indeed the concern of many of my constituents who could not for the life of them understand why fishing and golf was banned. Now, yes, we're talking about some social activities um, that I don't, I don't fish and I don't play golf, but I could see the point that people were trying to make, which was you go down to Bunnings and it's like Burke Street at the height of Christmas. You won't let me play golf. This is, this is ridiculous. Or sit out in a, like a little rowboat in the middle of a river and just fish for a and while. And just fish. I mean, this just doesn't make sense. Uh, we, we want. I mean, I, I, let's be honest. I mean, I took, uh, I, I took the, the the rulings and indeed the advice from government and the chief health officer extremely seriously with regards to social distancing, and I think that is one of the reasons why our country has been spared the horrors of what we've seen in in Europe with thousands of people, um, you know, tragically passing away because of this virus. We've been spared that because we closed our borders early, um, insisted on quarantine for, for arrivals back into Australia, and also practiced appropriate social distancing at the peak of this this crisis. But there were some aspects of it in Victoria that were, were frankly stupid, uh, and I called it out. But I want to get into, because if I can 
be blind. Uh, I haven't felt like the last couple of years the Victorian Liberal Party has been at Daniel Edge's throat as much as it could have been like when you were both in government and now in opposition. But I think since coronavirus, you've switched that. Like you personally have switched that. And I've, as Pete says, I've now got people that I've never heard a peep from politically in their lives who know who you are and might not know who other members of the shadow cabinet are or even the, you know, even Michael O'Brien. They might not know who that is, but they know who you are. So... What I want to know is uh, wh- what's been that switch? Like what what have you found from Twitter that, in my view, has been eluding the Victorian Liberal Party for a few years now? Well, I, I, I think – well, it's, it's, a, it's some very nice compliments you paid me there, James, and I appreciate that. But I think you've got to, you've got to remember that there's been absolutely no distractions from politics over the last two months. No footy, no sport. Everyone's been locked inside. People are either watching TV or on their phone, right? So you tweet something of an evening, and I've noticed this. People are watching. People, the the feedback, both positive and negative, can I be really frank with you, on all of my social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the whole thing, has just been off the charts, right? I've never seen anything like it. And I think, to be honest, a lot more people have been, because for the first time ever, people were conscious that state government was really important to the way that they were living their lives. Because mm. most people, let's be honest, most people, when they think about politics, think Donald Trump, global issues. Um, Hashtag Scotty for marketing and that's uh, about it. Canberra, <laughs> yeah. something, you know, income tax, Canberra, um, Albo, ScoMo, that sort of, and then maybe some local issue, which is usually the local council. Um, when was the last time any of your mates who are not involved in politics mentioned state state politics? Well, everyone's realised that all these controls over our lives, social distancing, the closing of businesses, you must work from home. Interstate travel. They're all interstate travel. I don't think most people realise that a state government could close a state border. I think most people had no idea that it was actually state governments that had to implement. I mean, this National Cabinet thing is very new. What is not new is state governments controlling domestic economies. That is a setup of our federation. So, of course, when people have realised that it's actually Daniel Andrews who's saying you must work from home, that you can't send your children to school, um, that you can't go fishing, you can't play golf, the pubs are closed, that there are 50 people, that small business owners are being, particularly cafe owners, restaurant owners are being, I think, you know, certainly treated far more harshly here than they are in Sydney. Well, people start looking, all right, well, who, who, is in, who is in state parliament and, and what are the issues and who's saying what? So I think there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like the last time before coronavirus I would have seen the Prime Minister saying this is a matter for state governments. Like when they say, do you want to see the country open? Scott Morrison basically saying, I wouldn't, but I can't do anything about that. Mm, no. Talk to your state parliament. And, and I think this is going to a broader point. I mean, this is one of the problems with the lack of civic education in this country. I mean, no one understands that huge powers over our lives um, are not controlled from Canberra. They're controlled in each of the states and territories. And um, where most people, I think, focus on state politics maybe once, you know, every four years for the half an hour that they're queuing up for, to, to vote in a state election before they get their democracy sausage, um, you know, as you say, you know, people are like, okay... Um, there's a second layer of the to there's a second level of government here in Australia, and I think I know most people understand that there's state and federal government, but I don't think they quite understood the powers that the states actually have, which are enormous. Hmm. Yeah, there's certainly been like the prime minister will announce something, and then Daniel Andrews will go, "Yeah, no, nah, we're not going to do that," and everyone's like, "I thought he was in charge." Well, that, that <laughs> yeah. was it. well, can I just say, as a as a local MP, I've never been busier in terms of correspondence with constituents. With people, business owners, uh, citizens, uh, constituents ringing me up saying, or writing to me saying, well, the Prime Minister's just said this, uh, but Chairman Dan just said that. Mm. Um, what's, and I said, well, un- unfortunately in Victoria, Chairman Dan's um, diktats are the, they're, they're, they're what you have to follow because unfortunately the federal government's got no jurisdiction over any of this stuff. The Prime Minister, uh, for example, you know, closed our borders spot on. 
um, insisted on quarantine for foreign arrivals, uh, Australians returning home, spot on. But in terms of the domestic economy, all state leaders. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so uh, one last question for you. Uh, we've, just, we've seen over the last couple of days, so the newly appointed local government minister, Danny Pearson, made comments in 2015 in the parliament uh, regarding... Wait, I've got the comments here, if I can jump in. So jump this in. is, yeah, Danny Pearson, he's newly assist, appointed... He's actually the assistant treasurer. Assistant treasurer. So Danny Pearson, this is from 20, 2015. I was somewhat surprised when the leader of the opposition made some comments on the weekend about having a memorial for the victims of persecution overseas. He did not talk about the great contribution the Red Army made in supporting Western liberal democracy by providing support to the British government and destroying fascism. We are all beneficiaries of the great contribution the Red Army made. He then went on to single out Marshal Gregory Zukov, who was won the Order of Lenin and led the Red Army through the Eastern Front. What's going on there? Like, I thought that was a joke gone awry, but the second you start referencing the order of Lenin, no one's joking anymore. You genuinely think these people should be braced. Well, here's the thing. This is, again, the history curriculum in the state of Victoria and across Australia is just clearly useless. If a minister of the Crown has that misunderstanding of the role that the Red Army played in Eastern Europe um, before, during and after World War II. So three facts. One... Uh, the Red Army and indeed the Soviet Union had a pact with Hitler, uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that was in existence until Hitler invaded Russia in 1941. In that time, the Red Army invaded the eastern half of Poland, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. Now, I know um, um, many Latvians, many Lithuanians who see the Red Army in many respects as being worse than the Nazis as they invaded uh, their homelands. So you, this is the ignorance of that comment. Yes, Marshal Zhukov did lead the Russian army, or the Soviet army, in its assault on Nazi Germany after the Operation Barbarossa, which is Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union. Yes, yes, he, he very much led that um, assault on Nazi Germany and took Berlin. That is true. So to the extent that Zhukov led the Soviets in the defeat of Nazi Germany, that, that is true. But he also then occupied Eastern Europe for the next 50 years. Well, Zhukov didn't, but the Red Army did. And we all know the horrors of that occupation after World War II. So if Pearson had simply said that we respect the role that, and obviously the enormous role and sacrifice that the Soviet Army and the Russian people made in the defeat of Hitler, fair enough. But he didn't. He praised the Red Army in its totality. Well, if you're a Latvian, an Estonian, a Hungarian, um, a Lithuanian, a Pole, by background, uh, you would be absolutely appalled and disgusted and deeply offended by that comment and he ought to apologise to people of those backgrounds. I reckon you're being kind. I reckon the worry is he doesn't know, he does know all that, not that he's ignorant. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, you, know, you you never know. Any you, you can't. You can't. You can't. Well, you'd have to be an idiot, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah if you know who's winning, Order of Lenin's. <laughs> well, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. I mean, maybe I've been too nice to and him, but 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 you know, I mean, what a fool. Yeah, I also like the idea that uh, the Red Army destroyed fascism. Like, I just think the colours change slightly. I don't know of any, any different political uh, rule or regulation that was changed from one army to the next well, one. Well, well, the Red Army made a contribution to the the destruction of Hitler's Germany, uh, as did hundreds of thousands of British, Americans, Canadians, Australians, mm. Kiwis, Poles, French. Um, you know, let's... I mean, and this is the problem with politicians acting as, you know, quasi-historians when they've clearly got no... absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Um gets them into huge trouble. Yeah, I certainly didn't see any uh, Red Army generals going to war for the rule of law. Uh, now, Tim Smith, <laughs> thank you thank very you, much mate. for your time. Thank you, James. Thank All you right. very Thanks, much. Tim. Thanks, Pete. Cheers, mate. All right, thank you too, Tim Smith and Pete. Let's run through some stories that made us laugh this week. Peter, take us away. All right, well, this is something I've seen a little bit more of over the last couple of months, and that is left-wing figures claiming that the ABC has a right-wing bias and there's no one more prominent in the left than... Good old ex-Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, 
who has been tweeting a lot, and this is out of an article in the. I don't know if he's the most prominent left wing. Like the second you start replying to the editor of the Jacobin magazine, Mm. like you've lost the stature of most (laughs) prominent left wing person in Australia. It's been a tough fall. He'll be flat about that, but there it is. James Bolt no longer rating Kevin Rudd as a left wing figure. Anyway, he's been tweeting a lot about the ABC recently, and this was all sort of, uh, how would you call it, listed together in an article in The Australian. Now, he said, uh, these are a few things that he's tweeted. The ABC was leaning liberal, as in large L liberal, denying a Labor voice, violating balance as mandated by the Charter. A day earlier, he tweeted that Auntie was turning right on stories on Indigenous subjects featuring long grabs from ministers, but zero coverage of the Labor Party position. Uh, last month, he accused the ABC Brisbane 7pm bulletin of running 10 minutes uncritical propaganda for uh, Morrison, Prime Minister. And he also tweeted, I've spent my life defending the ABC, but Ida Buttrose has had a large, huge impact on the national broadcaster. Uh, James, what do you think about that? Uh, I could think of a few ways to approach this, but I think mm. the most effective on a words economical sense would just be to go, Kevin Rudd, bro. <laughs> bro. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind it as a tactic, bro. If that, we, that, that's my response. If Kevin Rudd is like, look, the ABC is like some far right hovel HN type setup, mm. then he should join the IPA in calling for the privatisation of, you know, I extend the friend of the hand of friendship mm. to Mr. Rudd, and, and if he thinks that the ABC is a disgrace, you know, if Paul Barry is some kind of rabid right winger, then let's privatise it, and and we can talk about it any time, Mr. Rudd. There is one thing, if Kevin Rudd does join the IPA, there is something he's going to have to knock out of his uh, diet or probably closer to it fashion sense, which is there was a very damaging photo of Kevin Rudd over the weekend okay. having dinner with Therese Rain where, where he was wearing Uggs. And yeah, I did say that. that's not going to fly. Wonder what what was he? What kind of venue are we talking? Is it Macca's or? Oh, it seemed to be some sort of, like, it wasn't fine dining, but it seemed to be some sort of, like, food court slash kind of nice place. But Uggs, Uggs Anywhere is just, no... So he's just turning mm. into a bit of a crazy old man. Yeah. He's not that old, but... <laughs> yeah, a guy of his age wearing Uggs and yelling at the ABC, you know, you can do better than that. I don't mind it. I like this version better than, <laughs> than other versions. Like now he's kind of like, you know, just a bit of an Don't outsider. say one of us because I will be all <laughs> over you if you say one of us. Not one of us at a body stretch of the imagination, but just a little bit of a, you know, I'm going to shoot from the hip, call the ABC right wing, wear rug boots out to get a bit of, I don't know, whatever he's eating with the missus. I don't mind it. No, no, I don't know. I cannot abide. Uh, all right, I've got one here. So, Charlotte Climber, a bit of a uh, feature on Twitter. Um, always good for a laugh at her expense. So, she is responding. So, like, amid the statue chat is there's a statue in Seattle of Lennon. So, now, she's an American writer. She's an American writer. Yeah. So, there was a statue in Seattle of Lennon mm-hmm. and... I don't know if you guys are history buffs or not. Uh, not exactly important to the history of Seattle, I would say. Vladimir Lenin, uh, definitely a controversial figure in history. But yeah, I was going to say the Russian one, not the Beatle. Good, good. Because <laughs> for a second I was confused. All right, yeah. okay. So picture of the uh, Lenin statue. And she's launched to the defense of why in the age of tearing down statues, Seattle should be allowed to keep the uh, statue of Lenin. Now, number one, it's privately owned and situated on private property, which, uh, you know, news to me, that's uh, apparently different. Like that's the, where we draw the line. It's like, okay, we'll tear down any statue, but the second you cross private property, which by the way is theft, then we will let the statue go. It's an extraordinary commitment to private property from a communist. Yeah. Uh, Number two, it has in fact frequently been vandalized, wonder who by, and then third, and most questionable for me, Lenin was not a slave owner, you Confederate apologist F-words. Yeah. Now, Peter, was Lenin a slave owner? Let's let's have an open discussion about this. I think that he was a slave owner in the sense that everyone in the USSR was a slave. Yeah, and I am like about to finish Gulag Archipelago and yeah. there's some chapters in there that I would describe as Lenin not having the best relationship with people in labor camps mm. and I would go as far to say that Lenin did have slaves. Mm. Well, they certainly weren't reimbursed for their work, so I guess they were made to do it against their will. So yeah, that would make you a slave. And I would say that this is like a lot of the people tearing down the statues actually believe in a philosophy that killed 100 million people. Mm. Let's not forget that. I reckon she needs to learn. She needs to do do better. She needs to do reading. She needs to listen. She needs to do better. Very good. Do better. Yeah. Uh, with a capital D and a capital B. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing I want to say, so you Confederate apologist F-words. Mm. Now, 
Pete, I can both say that Lenin had slaves and is a dark stain on human history, and I can also say that the Confederacy is a dark, dark stain on American history. Yeah. I can do both things. Yeah. Like, I don't know why I'm suddenly an apologist for Confederacy if I just say that Lenin was a bad guy. I don't know if you're aware, James, but often the left would call people that they don't agree with racists without no. any basis to, um, to discredit their the argument. The old so straw man argument. I hated to... I, it was a real blow for me to find that out and yep. I'm sorry that you had to find it out this way, but that's the way it is. But it is on private property. All right, uh, that is it for the show this week. Before we go, we are going to be doing Friday show live. I want to... Yeah, live. Yep, and live. We're going to be live streaming it on Facebook and Pete and I are thinking about like, you know... What can we do with that? Mm. What are the opportunities? What do people want from that? Yeah. And, you know, if you have any ideas, if you have anything that you would like, maybe it's like a, you know, Q&A format or, you know, question, basically questions from the crowd, anything like that, yeah. get in touch with us. Let us know what you'd like from that because that'd be really cool to planning out the show. Yep. Uh, you know, message the IPA's Facebook page because that all goes through to me. Message us on Twitter, peter.j.gregory.7 on Instagram. Yeah. Get the uh, Australia's number one social media influencer out there i think i'm going to focus more on twitter from now on oh interesting peter j gregory three twitter Ooh, so many numbers i'm going to photo, focus on both how many peter j gregory's are there i'm not beating you to all the social media apps i don't know why that is but yeah they did beat me to yes. the apps, which is surprising and i they did as well and i'm uh james m bolt on twitter so get in touch with us let us know what you think you can also find our email addresses on the ipa website because it's going to be really fun uh, all right, that is it for the show this week. Thanks again to Tim Smith. Make sure you're leaving us uh, a star review on iTunes befitting how you find the show. Mm. Tell your friends and family about it. Spread the word about the podcast. See you guys live on Facebook on Friday. Thanks, Big Steve. See you, everyone. Mm.